You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. As we consider the church, one of the great strengths of the church and one of the great challenges of the church is that it's entirely comprised of people. People who have been born again, certainly with the living hope. People who have been forgiven and made new creations. People who are filled with the Spirit of God. People who are now on the path of righteousness and they no longer live in darkness but know the light of Christ. Yet these same people continue in their fight against sin. The old theologians talked about this in this way. They called it simultaneously saint and sinner. We are children of God, but yet we continue to wrestle against sin in our own life. At the same time we are born again, yet still dealing with sin. At the same time forgiven of sin, yet also continually having to die to sin. The Apostle Paul certainly knew this tension and this dynamic. And he addressed various sin issues in his letters to the churches that we have recorded for us in the New Testament. He did this in his address to the church at Corinth, to the church at Philippi, to the church in Galatia. He did this to the church that was in Ephesus and Colossae. And he also did it to the church in Thessalonica. This morning, we are going to hear as Paul addresses an ongoing sin problem in the church at Thessalonica. This this sin was that some of the brethren, and that could have also included women, that some of the brethren in the church would not work. And they were living off the charity of other people. So as Paul addresses this problem and this sin, he's going to help us to see the importance of work itself. He's going to help us understand the importance of supporting those in ministry. And he's going to help us understand the place of benevolence in the church. And so we'll be looking at at these things as we move through this passage. So I will be reading aloud. You please follow along as I begin in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not, it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the word of the Lord. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray together. Father, we open our hearts to you. We, we want to hear you, Lord. Again, it is my prayer this morning that they may be listening to my voice, but I pray that it's your voice they actually hear. That you will speak life to us, that you will help us understand Jesus in a clear way, that you will help us understand what this means in our life in the context of the world in which we are living. Teach us, Father. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. In Paul's first letter, he instructed the church in Thessalonica on how to handle Christians who were struggling in various ways. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we are told to those who are struggling with faint-heartedness, we are to encourage them. To those who are struggling in weakness, we are to help them. To those who are struggling in idleness, we are to admonish them or warn them. So Paul picks up a theme that he has already addressed in the first letter and what we're going to see that he had actually addressed when he was actually physically with them. He gave them instruction concerning work and concerning those who had given themselves over to idleness. He's picking up that theme again because apparently nothing was sticking with these individuals. The admonishment wasn't working because we are told here that these brothers in the church persisted in idleness. So he goes even further in the passage we just read. He tells that the church has a response to these individuals. Uh, that they are to respond to these who are wasting their days in idleness. These brothers will not listen to the admonishment. They continue to defy the sound teaching given to them. These brothers were apparently causing disturbances in the church by their idle behavior. So we're, that's, that's just a quick flyover. So now we're going to go back and just kind of look at what Paul is saying here. And we're going to try to understand what that means for us today and understand the implications for where we live. I did not read this, but just a few verses before verse, verse uh, 6, Paul said this in, in verse 4. Paul said, And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So in verse 6, Paul is kind of extending that. He's picking up on that. In verse 6, he begins this whole section, verses 6 through 12. He begins this section with the command, and then he's going to end this section with the command. And he's doing this out of this confidence that the Lord has given him, that they're going to hear this, and they're going to act on this. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. His confidence, again, was that these believers would obey because the command wasn't just what Paul wanted. This command came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These commands weren't a whim of Paul. They weren't just wise suggestions. It carried the weight of authority from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And so it carried that urgency, that importance. He wanted them to understand this. In verse 6, the the church is commanded to avoid or keep away from anyone who persists in this idle behavior. In verse 12, the idlers, those who are living in idleness, they are commanded to start working and to begin to provide for themselves. So what is going on here? What is happening? Why is Paul addressing this? First, we need to be clear that he addresses these as brothers. These were not people who had come in from the outside that had infiltrated the church. He's addressing brothers and sisters who were followers of Christ, who were born again, but had been misled and were on a path of disobedience. They were not heeding the instruction. What is going on with these brothers in in this idleness and in their defiance of what they had been clearly taught by Paul personally, what what Paul had instructed in 1 Thessalonians and what he brings up here again in 2 Thessalonians. So what is this idleness he's referring to? Idleness, essentially, the bottom line is, it refers to someone who will not work. And the result of that idleness is this implication that it has a ripple effect into the community. It brings disorder into the community. Like someone in the military who will not march in line. If someone's out of step, if someone's doing their own thing, it throws off the whole, the whole march. But their specific thing is that they are not working. They're not keeping in step with the way of Christ. And they're becoming a disruptive presence in the church through their behavior. Because they were not working, they were having to basically mooch off other people. They were having to live and get food from other people because they were unwilling to work. So even at this point, we need to be clear that Paul is not addressing those who are truly in need. And we'll talk about that a little bit later under the topic of benevolence. He is addressing those who could work but won't work. These are people who instead of being busy at work, they have become busy bodies. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In their idleness, they were sticking their noses into other people's business. They were also likely talking all the time, offering opinions, giving advice, giving suggestions. Maybe this came out, maybe this came out because they were bored, or maybe they felt entitled, or for whatever reason, Paul doesn't tell us why they were doing this. But their behavior was disruptive in the church. They were busybodies. And this was a serious issue, enough so that Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let them not eat. The natural consequences, essentially, of not working, Paul said, let that fall on that individual. Now, again, remember, in this warning and in that what maybe seems harsh to some of us that he would say, let them not eat, remember, this isn't his first time to address this. He addressed it in person when when he first came and proclaimed the gospel to them. He addressed it again in 1 Thessalonians, and he's addressing it now. He's saying these people are persistent in their defiance of what God and what Christ commands. Now Paul is addressing these idlers, if we want to call them that, those who are persisting in their idleness. 
He's, a, he's addressing them directly. He says they are walking in sin. That's why I use the word persistent. They are persisting in it. This isn't just a, hey, I had a bad day or I had a bad week. These are people who are determining as a course of life, as a course of living, to continue to refuse to obey the command of the Lord and to work. This is how they are living their lives. This isn't a difficult season they are going through. They aren't between jobs. They didn't just get laid off. They are choosing day after day not to work, and that places them in a position of having to get food from others who are working. This was a life choice, and they continued in that choice in defiance of the instruction and warning that Paul had given to them repeatedly. Adding to this instruction and warning, Paul then points to the example of himself and Silas when they were actually among them. Remember that Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica. They were only able to be there just a few weeks, three, four weeks, maybe two months at the most. We're not exactly sure, but they weren't there a long time because they met such significant opposition that their life was in danger. So they had to leave Thessalonica after proclaiming Christ, establishing the the church, pouring into those people as much as they could in those few weeks. They then went on. And Paul is reminding them, even in those few weeks, do you remember how we lived among you? Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right. We had that right to ask for that, but we didn't. But to give you ourselves an example, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. See, Paul again reminds these brothers in Thessalonica how hard he and Silas worked among them when they came to proclaim Christ. They didn't want to be a burden. They felt like in this situation, though they had a right to be supported, they felt like in this situation, because of the dynamic of the church, because of what was happening, they chose not to be that kind of financial burden. So they talk about toiling day and night. They were probably, you know, we talk about Paul being a tent maker. We talk about him having skills that he was probably working constantly, whether making a tent or inviting people into the shop where the tent was being made. All of that constantly just proclaiming Christ, whatever he was doing. We were not idle when we were with you. Paul is contrasting his and Silas's behavior with these who are idlers. We weren't idle among you. We weren't looking to live off you. We wanted you to see a different example. Paul then tells us, again, that they had a right to be supported, but they chose not to exercise that right for the sake of the church. Paul must have been aware of this, of what was happening in the larger culture around the church in Thessalonica, and that that there was a certain dynamic in that culture that was finding expression into the church. I'm not completely clear on how all this worked, but but basically it's part of that culture. You would have rich individuals who would be considered patrons. And these patrons had what they called clients. And these clients who, who would come to them for support, and in return for the support that the patron would give them, they would then carry out or promote their agenda or do whatever it was uh, that, that they wanted done. 
These clients didn't work, but relied on their patrons for their support. And basically, Paul had to have been aware of that because he's saying, if I come in and if I rightfully take the support from the gospel ministry, it's going to look like I'm part of that problem, I'm part of that culture. So he willingly said, no, I'm not going to do that. In order to not put any unnecessary obstacle in the way of the gospel, Paul chose not to get support from them and look like that was some kind of patron-client situation. Now, I know for our minds that, that I, I don't get the full understanding of that culture, but I read that again and again, that that was the dynamic. So Paul's command is for the church to then avoid or keep away from those who persist in this kind of life. The faith community is to respond to those who by their persistent and contrary actions bring discord and disruption into the church and those who are living in defiance of the way and will of God. Paul is saying they need to practice a specific kind of discipline towards these brothers. They're not excommunicating, they're not kicking them out of the church, but they're withdrawing fellowship. The church is not to act like there's no big deal. They're certainly not to enter into that that patron-client kind of of scenario. They They don't want there to be any sense in which which people might think that the church is okay with that. They refuse to obey the command of the Lord, and they need to be avoided until they repent. These brothers, I think, essentially are not to be involved in the ongoing fellowship of the church. It's not that people can't reach out to them and encourage them and exhort them and admonish them, but in terms of the ongoing fellowship of the church, Paul's instruction and command of the Lord from the Lord, was that the church avoid these individuals. Next week, God willing, Phil will deal with church discipline probably in more detail than this. But for us this morning, we need to know that it is for the health of the church and the good of its people that we address persistent defiance of the Lord. That's never an easy thing. It's never a fun thing. Discipline like this, of course, must never be done hastily or in the heat of the moment. It certainly must never be done in anger or frustration or irritation or resentment. It certainly, absolutely must never be done punitively. That is, you hurt us, we're going to hurt you kind of thing. Redemption is the motive. Humility is the call in every church discipline situation. Yet there are actions to to take by the church when members continue in sin. So, that's what this paragraph is about. And it's a lot. A command of the Lord for the church to avoid those who walk in idleness, and a command of the Lord for those walking in idleness to repent and start working in order to earn their own living. So that's basically what's what's happening here. I want to just take what time we have left and just work through some of the implications for our lives and for where we are. Number one, we are to work to provide for ourselves and not depend on others. I'm talking as a general rule. There are times certainly, uh, when Tara and I were early on, we, we got help from our parents. I'm not, but we were always working. Okay? 
Paul said in verse 12, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus to do work quietly and earn a living. Instead of this boisterous, busybody stuff that was going on, you need to find a job and you need to work at it. You need to provide for yourself. Paul had said something similar in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, we urge you, brothers, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. He's kind of the same, you hear the same themes there. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to work in order to support ourselves, and by implication, our families, and we would extend that to the church, and to gospel ministry. Again, this doesn't mean we, that we can't go through hard times. It doesn't mean that we could not lose a, that possibly we lose a job or we're in transition from one job to the, to the other. It does mean that our desire in order to be pleasing to the Lord is to work and take care of our own needs and not be looking out for others to take care of our needs. But even in this, we, we have to go to, to, what, to, the, to the trust factor. You see, I think that's probably part of what Paul was dealing with with these people who were persisting in idleness. They were looking to the patron, most likely, to support them when they should be looking to the Lord to support them. And in obedience to Him, then working. Even as we are working, and you may have a high-paying job, you may be barely scrapping by, whatever it may be, or, or somewhere in the middle where probably most of us are. Our dependency is on the Lord. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day, what? Our daily bread. Give us this day our daily... Paul's saying, hey, you shouldn't be looking to get bread from other people. You should be working. And in that, we are told that we are to trust in the Lord, to look to Him for our daily bread. Family, is that part of your prayer? Do you pray that way in your life? Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, please provide what we need to pay our bills so that I can take care of this family, so that I can, by implication and extension, so I can support the gospel ministry. But we're looking to the Lord to supply what we need. If our heart is to be slothful, to lazy, to live off others, we must confess that and repent of it and ask God to provide work even as He provides our daily bread. So I, I just encourage you as you think about this and making this part of your own family, your own personal prayer time. If you're married, when you pray together with your spouse, ask, Lord, please provide what we need today to take care of the financial requirements. Help us in that to be wise in how we spend our money and honor you, but Lord, provide what we need. You know what, parents? Bring your children into that prayer. That's a powerful thing when they hear their parents asking the Lord to provide what they need, whether it's housing or jobs or finances. You bring your kids into that, and when the Lord provides, they see the Lord at work and caring for His children. Let that be part. And the way Jesus actually said this was, give us this day our daily bread. This is something we are supposed to be praying for regularly, if not daily. 
Where we're saying, Lord, please provide what we need. Yeah, I am willing to work. Lord, provide the job. But I am ultimately looking for you to provide through the job to give us what we need. And this leads to the second implication. Working is part of imaging God in our world. Working isn't just some kind of secular thing we do because we have to. When we work, we're actually imaging our God who made us. The earliest record we have in Scripture, we hear God is at work. What is He doing? In the beginning, God created. He's at work. He was working. The heavens and the earth. You go to the New Testament and you hear this. this Jesus said this in John 5, 17. My Father is working until now, and I am working. God finished and rested from His creation work, but He continues His work of redemption. And Jesus said, I see, I know my Father is working until now. I know He continues to work. It is not insignificant that when we talk about redemption, we talk about the work of Christ. Again, imaging God. In that work, there are things being done. There are things being accomplished. There are things being, being finished. Actions are being taken. When we act, when we work, we're imaging God in a very real way. And part of that is in creation. You go back to the creation, God. In the creation account, God gave work to mankind. Genesis 1.28 Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And then a little bit later, he gave to Adam the job of finishing naming all the animals. This was a way of including Adam in his creation work. I think as well as demonstrating to Adam that the only the woman was truly fit to be his helper. I think there was a way for him to distinguish that. That's why he said, oh, finally, now, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Some people think that work was the result of the fall. But Scripture records that, that God gave work before sin entered. It is an expression of who He is, and it's woven into how He made us. And it's defined expression in our life as new creations. Whatever we're doing, we're working as unto the Lord. All appropriate work is God-honoring when it is done in faith and in service to Him and in service to others. Our work must be a fulfillment to some degree of the great commandment to love God and to love others. When we work, we reflect our God who made us this way. Listen to these verses. And just help us as we think, as you think about your job and where you are, even as you're looking to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and calling upon the Lord to provide and to care for you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think that applies to our work. Whatever you do, Colossians 3, 17 and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I think that applies in our work. 
whatever that may be. A little bit later in Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So go to work every day with this thought. Today I will serve the Lord. Today I will serve the Lord. And whatever is presented to me, I will do it as unto Him. And not to please men, but to please Him. We are to work to provide for ourselves. Second implication, working as part of imaging God. Third implication, it is right for the church to financially support those in ministry. Okay, now you may be thinking, uh, Rob, Paul refused the support. He said he wouldn't take that support. He did it for a very specific reason that we have already covered and talked about. He did it because he didn't want there to be any sense that people were projecting on him what was going on in the culture, that all he was about was money and getting people to be his follower. He did it because he did not want to be a burden to that church. He wanted instead to give them an example of what hard work looked like. But, but here again, we, we read through this. I want, I want to go back and emphasize something. Verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. That was his reason. Verse 9, It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves, an example to imitate. Paul chose to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And I, I, just a side note here, because I know God is working in many hearts, I think calling, calling men into ministry. You need to know that the gospel call is a call to sacrifice. There are things that, that if you're called to proclaim Christ, if you're called to, to lead, it is a call to sacrifice yourself so often in ways that other, other Christians are not called to. We're all called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And that looks different. But in, in ministry, there is a constant sacrifice that, that those in gospel ministry are called upon. Paul, in this context, it was expressed this way. In other church situations, Paul did receive support. But being sensitive to what the Lord was doing here. He said the same kind of thing, really, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me read that. 1 Corinthians 9, you hear the same kinds of thing. Uh, but he gives us an even greater context for, for ministers and uh, being supported. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He goes on to say, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Again, there was a situation in that church at Corinth that he was specifically addressing. But don't miss the bigger picture here. Yes, there is sacrifice, and that is what happened. But there is also incumbent upon the church and those who, are, who, who, who fill the church that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. I think this opens for us something important to consider as a church. Again, I, I'm dealing with a topic that can seem very self-serving. 
I'm aware of that. I, I want to be humble. Hopefully we can recognize that this is the word and way of the Lord for the church. It's beyond any of my motives. That it is clear from the witness and instruction of Scripture that financial support be given to those in gospel ministry. It's also clear that there are times and situations where those called to gospel ministry may need to sacrifice and forego that support. But as a rule, the Lord commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Well, what does this mean for us? First of all, the church is not a business. About 30 years ago, someone said, hey, let's start thinking about the church as a business because there are some overlaps. There are some things that seem to be the same. And, and no one seemed to say, maybe that's not a good idea to think about the church as a business. We are not bottom line oriented. We are not about promoting our brand. We are not about making a profit. Pastors are not CEOs. They are not hired guns. They are not employees. There are aspects to church life and functions that are similar to a business. Yes, there are administrative aspects. There are budgeting aspects. There are financial aspects. There are legal aspects. There are things that because we, where we live, in the state we live, in the country we live, that we have to do certain legal things. Strategizing and planning. These are aspects to the life and work of the church. But listen, the church is not a business. It is a living spiritual organism. The church is the bride of Christ and it must operate as such. The church is the body of Christ and must operate as the body of Christ. This is how we think about ourselves. The financial support of ministers is not because they are employees of the church. In the church, the church isn't paying the pastor's salary as much as they are providing financial support so the pastors can give themselves full-time to gospel ministry. That's the relationship that we see here. So don't think in terms of employer and employees or even so much in salary and compensation, although those terms are used sometimes. But more accurately, the church takes care of the financial needs of the pastors in order that they may devote themselves full-time to ministry. That's, that's, that's what we essentially see pictured here. There are times where the pastors may need to get job. They may need to get work, certainly because that's part of what Paul says here. This, this letting go of the whole church as business. This makes the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep more intimate, more connected. And to be truthful with you, having been in ministry for over 30 years, this is one of the most humbling things that I know of. That the people who I am called to love and lead would take care of me financially so that I can love and lead them. It's humbling when I think about that. Yes, there is wisdom and there needs to be policies and ways of operating, but they come out of the church as a ministry, not as a business. We know from church history that at times Paul was able to minister in other areas because there were churches like in Philippi that were actually supporting him so he could do what needed to be done in other areas. I, ho I hope this encourages you. There are people in churches in western New York from where I, I spent the past, you know, about 28 years, that are supporting our church by supporting me. 
They graciously give between $15,000 to $20,000 every year so that this church can be planted, so that I can be part, because they want to see a gospel-preaching, a Bible-believing church planted. They're partnering with us. They're, they're doing what Scripture d- tells us to do, giving generously, giving sacrificially, giving consistently, giving joyfully, so that this might happen. And in support of me, that means that Phil and I can give full-time our efforts to, what, to gospel ministry. It may not always be that way. We may have to work at some point. So be it. That's part of the calling. But that's what's enabled. I hope you're encouraged to know that. So we, work to, we are to work to provide for ourselves, working as part of imaging God. It is right for the church to financially support those in ministry. And here's the final implication. We are to practice compassionate yet wise benevolence. Compassionate yet wise benevolence. Both in the Old and New Testament, the Lord has expressed that His people are to care for those in need. The history of the Christian church is the history of, of building orphanages and hospitals and places that took care of people who were in need. Sometimes I feel like we've gotten away from some of that today. Paul here is trying to make sure that the church does not treat these idlers as if they are poor and destitute when they in reality can work but have chosen not to. He wants to make sure that they're not receiving benevolence from the church when there are other people most likely who were in need of benevolence. But we must have that category as followers of Christ and as the church of Christ. It's throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Leviticus 19. I'm just trying to demonstrate that the Lord always had this concern for His people. Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, that in helping the poor, you're helping him. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Acts 20 verse 35, in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in these ways, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Galatians 2 verse 10, Paul was encouraged by James, Cephas, and John to remember the poor. And Paul said, I was only too glad to do that. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Listen, the testimony of scripture concerning this matter is clear. We do not build wealth in order to accumulate as much as we can for our own pleasure. And for our own desires. We work to provide for ourselves as is commanded. To help others as well as to support gospel ministry. We work to be able to give to help in relief of suffering and need of those who are around us. That is a very real part of following Christ. Christ. 
As a church, we are in the, in the process of developing policies that will help us as a church to help those who are in need. I think we probably have experience where maybe we, if we would have had some wise policy uh, that the benevolence we had given in the past maybe wouldn't have happened. But we're just, we trust all that way to the Lord. But going forward, we want to be a church that gives. Paul's warning against idlers needs to be heeded. But we want to make sure that our helping doesn't actually hurt and is actually going to those who are truly in need. As followers of Christ and as the church of Christ, our heart is to help those in need with compassionate and wise ways. Paul's exhortation to the idlers is essentially this. Be those who are giving, not those who are taking. Work hard so you can give, not so you're somebody who's taking. Hear again what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than receive. This is brought, I think, front and center for us every week as we come to the Lord's table. We are reminded of the greatest gift ever given. God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son for us that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. The table is a reminder and a fresh encounter for us with our Savior and His grace. For we see what He sacrificed. We see what He gave. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. We come to this time not in celebration of anything we have done, or any reliance on ourselves, that would be an offense and contrary to what communion represents and means to us. It's not about us. It's about Christ and our union in Christ. And the joy that then comes to us. It is all about grace, what God has done for us in Christ, taking our sin, giving us His life. Let's pray together.